My name is Emma Matthew, and I just graduated from high school, so I'm going to UCLA, and I, thanks. <laughs> and I serve in college ministries. Our scripture reading today is Psalm 51. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Emma. I think it's only appropriate that we have an eight clap for Emma as she heads off to UCLA. No, that was a joke, but if you really want to. We could do it. Let's do it later. Okay. Um, well, good morning. I have to tell you, it's good to be back, whether you knew it or not. Jenny and I and the boys have been gone for two weeks, and the conclusion is Sunday morning on vacation with Dad is not super fun because all he's thinking about is you all. And so I get banished away to hotel lobbies and to quiet chairs to stream and to get away from all of them. So I am I'm glad to be back with you. We were, did a week of ministry at Campus by the Sea, speaking at family camp, and then we were able to travel with Jenny's family for a week. And Two weeks away with no cell phone was beautiful, but also coming home is even more beautiful, so we're glad to be here. Thank you for the opportunity to preach, Greg. It's really kind. You only have a few more weeks, and you're giving me one of these, so there's something in this text you want me to say to them and not you, so here we go. Last week, Pastor Greg taught an amazing sermon about do we trust that, God's, that God is good and his ways are good. And we looked at a particular psalm, uh, Psalm 19, and found out that, yeah, the psalmist to reflect that God's ways are good. 
we find ourselves now at Psalm 51 for what happens when we say no. What happens when you and I consciously, deliberately, knowingly know what God wants for our life, know his ways, and for the moments where we say no, that we're gonna live our way and we're going to choose our own way differently from the ways of God. What is it, how is it that we are to live? Because the modern longing that each one of us have, because we all do that, myself included, all the pastors of this church, every elected leader of this church, spoiler alert, there is no one that's a part of at least this congregation I've met who follows God fully and purely all the time, and we all find ourselves in moments where we deliberately disobey God, and yet there's this longing inside of each one of us in those moments to get a fresh start, to experience freedom and forgiveness, to move past our worst moment, to move past our worst mistake, to move past the deliberate moments in which we say, we're gonna live for ourselves and not for God. I mean, I, I love that golf term, mulligan. The idea that we have a bad shot, and I love playing in tournaments where you can buy mulligans. I buy lots of them. Because it's a saying, that, 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 that swing, that shot, let's pretend it never happened, Be, have the freedom to put a new ball down and start over. And for the moments where you and I want to have some life mulligans, how does that work? Because we all find a way to move on. And I think Psalm 51 gives us a healthy way, a pure way, a, a faithful way to know how to move on from our worst moment, our worst mistakes, because a lot of us will just kind of stuff those moments and ignore them or we'll drink them away or we'll blame other people or we'll find a way to suppress it in some kind of way where we don't own our worst mistake but it owns us in some dangerous and unhealthy ways for years. I've been thinking a lot lately um, about what kind of resume God uses in people's lives. What, what's the kind of person that, that, that God uses? If I was to write a resume, which I think I might be in the near future, I've been thinking about writing two. All the highlights. Right, all the amazing things that have accomplished in, in different roles I've had or jobs I've had, but what needs to come right next to it is a resume of all of my failures, all of the moments over my 20 years at Lake Avenue Church where I acted inappropriately, where I reacted emotionally, where I wish I could do that conversation over, treated that person better, and I, I have so many of them. The one that is so loud to me is at winter camp of 2007, a high school student being a high school student, having fun at a time where we weren't supposed to be having fun. And I reacted, and my reaction caused shame for that student in front of his friends and peers in a way that had to be repaired many, many, many years later. And this student in particular is amazing because as much as I remember my worst moment as a youth pastor, I remember his kindest moment to me when he forgave me. I have more. You have more. You have a lot more too because part of being human is the reality that we have a sinful nature and that we choose our own way all of the time. And there are tough moments of 
disobedience. There are deliberate moments in which we walk away from God, and so this longing inside of us to be forgiven, to be free for a new start is a longing that isn't just contextual to today for you and me. We pick up a scripture, and Emma read it so beautifully, of Psalm 51, of that longing for a fresh start that dates back to this ancient text in the Psalms. And just for a moment, I'm sure Greg has gone over all this with you, but it's helpful for me to to frame the kind of genre the Psalms are in the scriptures. It's wisdom literature, five books of the Bible that are pretty unique. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Job. Wisdom literature, creative writing, poetry, the authorship of these uh, books is the human being expressing to God what it's like to live in his world. It's in juxtaposition to the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, where God is the, is the narrator saying, this is my world and this is how I want you to live in it. And then we get this gift of five books, the wisdom books that say, hey God, this is what it's like to live your way. This is my human experience. And why I love this section of scripture is because it, it validates for you and me that God actually cares about our human experience, our earthly experience. Contrary to what some of us grew up with or have heard, that we're just buying time here on earth until we die because the real party starts in heaven. Uh, No, that's true, but God, this all matters. The way you and I live each day matters. Our ability to, to know God and to know his ways and to trust him and to follow him and to be forgiven by him, all of that matters because in the Psalms in particular, we have all kinds of expressions from the psalmists expressions of, hey, this is working out. You're amazing, God. Boy, I really am connected to you. I'm going to praise you. I'm going to give thanksgiving for you. We have other psalms of people saying, where are you, God? I mean, I'm trying to be faithful, and I can't even hear you or see you. Songs of lament. We have psalms of confession. We have psalms of joy. We have all kinds because the human experience is all kinds. And I don't, even in this room, there's all kinds of ways we come into a worship service, some of us from incredible weeks, some of us from an incredibly difficult, horrible week in which you want that mulligan. So the Psalms are art, they're poetry, they're human beings expressing to God what it's like to live in his world, and in Psalm 51, as Matthew has said, we have a psalm of penitence, of repentance, of confession. And the superscription that was not read that is probably in your Bible, The superscription says, uh, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you don't know this story, you need to know this story. It's 2 Samuel 11 and 12. You can read it this week. I'll I'll give you the highlights, though. You know, this David person in the Bible that we hold up as the the great godly leader, he had some pretty human low moments. Lower moments, I, I will confess, I have a lot of mistakes. I can tell you I've not done any of the David stuff here, okay? But David having access to all kinds of women, sex was not an issue for David, sees the neighbor bathing on the roof, Bathsheba, and he wants her and he wants her bad, and so he calls for her, he has sex with her, she gets pregnant, he starts figuring out how he can, oh, by the way, she's married to a pretty important person in his army and his government, so he tries to come up, he lies and comes up with this plot to get him to pass his paternity off, And ultimately that didn't work, and so he sends her husband out to be killed. That's kind of a low moment in leadership, I would say. 
But David, not very self-aware of what he's doing because sometimes when we're in these David moments, our own context, boy, we just get in the tunnel. We just gotta fix it, solve it. We made a mistake, so now I just gotta like survive and save my face and save my reputation. He's in this tunnel of sin and it takes a friend, his friend Nathan, who tells him a story and at the end of the story, David's raging with injustice of that story and his friend Nathan says, you're the man in the story and that's the motivation, the context of which we find Psalm 51. The motivation of this expression, this poetry, come from the human experience of having done something <laughs> horrific and regretting what they've done and desiring that same desire, that same longing that we have for forgiveness, for freedom. So this human expression of following God, the context and motivation of failure, of regret, of sin, how is it that we can come to this text to study it? I don't have an art degree. I don't even think I took an art class in college, but I know that for me, poetry and music and art, we can dissect it, which we'll do a little bit of that, or we can let it hit us and, and let the art, let the psalm move us into different places and conversations and ideas. And for me, what we'll do this morning is by looking all of Psalm 51, there's way more than three movements in this piece of poetry but there's three main movements I want to talk about today. And I, I think these movements are critical because they're not just the, the movements of the psalmist. They need to be the movements for you and me when we find ourselves in a similar situation of wanting to experience forgiveness and freedom, to own what we've done in our lives that is those moments where we say, no, God, your way is not the way I'm going to live. How is it? Because this gives us a context and an example of how we might get back to that fresh start. So, three movements. First one, let's look at it. Verses one to six, we'll call it the movement of self-awareness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Notice that, my transgressions. He's owning what he has done. He's aware of his fault. Wash away all my iniquity, my iniquity. I'm owning that. Cleanse me from my sin. He's owning his sin. For I know my transgressions, again, owning his transgression. Sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight, and you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. We, incredible amount of ownership and self-awareness. Now I think it's important to understand that David, if the motivation of this psalm is David and David is writing this, uh, the, the superscription of the word Nathan is pretty important here because David, what David did not do in his ownership of his sin was just go about his normal life and naturally come to the conclusion that he had made a huge mistake. God used his friend and his brother Nathan in his life to wake him up to the reality of what his life was doing and the actions he had taken and the sin of his life. So I say self-awareness, but I don't want you to get the idea that he's just walking about in the mountain by himself and having these epiphanies, that to get to a place of self-awareness, David needed a friend. And oftentimes for you and me, 
in our own self-awareness of what we have done and the kind of people we truly are, the kinds of things we are capable of doing, we need relationship. We need people who love us and who know God and God's ways to point out to us what's going on in our lives. And so I say self-awareness of of the psalmist, but to become self-aware, David needed help. And once he was confronted with his sin, David, the psalmist, knew of the sin and they're not hiding from it. You know what I love about this? There's no blaming here. There's plenty of psalms that have blame. My enemies, where are you, God? This, not in this psalm, this is someone who is owning what they have done. No, no excuses, no reactions. Uh, Dr. John Golden Gay has been very helpful to point out in this first section, these six verses, what kind of awareness? What is, what is the psalmist owning? First one, note that he's aware of his own rebellion in verses one and three, and he even picks up in 13. But in verse one, blot out my, I know my. And this image, this ownership of rebellion is kind of the image of a child with a parent Right when a child um, when a child goes their own way, Greg used an amazing illustration last week of the cookie jar. We all know that. That when 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 the parent, when God has put out a way of living, and we know what we're not supposed to do, and yet we choose to still do that. That's what he's aware of. That he has been that child. That he is that person who knew what his father wanted, knew the right thing but chose to rebel against that. It's a refusal, it's a denial of doing what is right and what is expected. So so he is self-aware enough to know of his own reality in the midst of what God has asked him to do. He's also aware of his waywardness, not a word that we use often. In in, in verse two, our, our translations use the word iniquity in verses two and nine, sinful in verse five. Another translation of that would be this waywardness. My iniquity, I was sinful at birth. It communicates the idea of now a deliberate choosing. Right, whereas a child, um, you know, I have children. I'm aware of our rules in our home. I know when they choose differently and oftentimes when I confront them on that, I get a, what I think is a very sincere, yeah, I knew that but I did it anyway and I'm not quite sure why. Verses two and five and nine, this waywardness is just this deliberate reality. Deliberately choosing the wrong. Not mindless sin but intentional sin and intentional choices that go against the ways of God. I've shared this story with you before. My senior year of high school, I worked at Joshua's Christian Bookstore. And they trusted a whole store and a whole cash register to Jeff Matisich at 17 years old. I have no idea why. And Joshua's return policy was so loose that people could come in and did often and bring any merchandise that they had in their hand, whether they had a receipt or not, we would take it and we would give cash right back to them. And so my sinful, evil mind knew how easy it would be with no accountability to manipulate this system. Although I never had stolen before from the store, I gave my two weeks notice because I wanted to enjoy a month of my senior year of high school. And right before closing, it was my second to last shift, I grabbed a $140 genuine leather black bound Bible off the shelf, changed my name and my mind returned it as if a customer came in and pocketed about $150 cash into my pocket. I stole a Bible. Thanks for letting me be your pastor. Appreciate that. 
Uh, I, I, knew, I knew what I was doing. I knew exactly what I was doing. I knew what was right. I knew what was wrong. I knew what God's ways were. I got caught. That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is it's an intentional that I know what I'm choosing to do. That's a safe one for me to share with you, ironically. What, what, what are the moments in your life where you know what you're doing is wrong and you've deliberately chosen away from that? The psalmist in Psalm 51 is owning not just their rebellion, their human rebellion, they're owning their deliberate waywardness. He's also acknowledging, self-aware of failure. And there's this interesting line that we've got, we've got to look at for a moment where he talks about against you and you only I have sinned, Lord. Okay, we know the context. Yeah, against you and you only, God? I mean, Uriah's dead. Bathsheba has been treated like, like a piece of property. There's been real impact of your decisions, and he has the goal to just own it to God as if there's no earthly consequence, but, but it's important for us to understand that this bifurcation that you and I live in, this duality of the earthly and the spiritual that, that just per permeates our minds, in the ancient world it was all connected much better than we connect. So that an action and a sin against a human being was so connected to a spiritual reaction and this failure is one of moral failure. Yes, earthly Action, but spiritual was so much bigger than our understanding of spiritual. You and I can actually have, have conflict with one another, seek forgiveness with one another, and leave God out of it. For them, it was all-encompassing. And so when he is aware of his failure to God, it's because of the moral failure of his earthly life is so deeply connected. You and I... Our tendency is not to recognize that reality. So if I have a fight or an argument or a disagreement with a coworker, where's God in that? We gotta do some mental gymnastics sometimes to connect God to our day-to-day -day life. Because frankly, we want care what other people think about us. And we're able to ignore what we think God thinks of that because we have to slow down enough to be self-aware or we need other voices to shout out. So it's important to note that his awareness of his failure to God does not unacknowledge his failure to Uriah, to Bathsheba. Self-awareness of rebellion, self-awareness of waywardness, self-awareness of failure. And in, in verses five and six, we see the psalmist owning it all, saying, I am this, you desire this, I am owning what I have done, I am owning what I have done who I am, no blame, not blaming God, not blaming temptation, not blaming other people, he owns it. Now, I think it's just important for a moment to understand that these superscriptions, especially in Psalm 51, can be so helpful, but they can also prevent us from seeing ourselves in the psalm, because honestly, David's uh, list here, his context is pretty heavy. I mean, we talked about the Ten Commandments last week, there's at least four of them I can tick off right away. Uh, murder, stealing, coveting your neighbor's wife, adultery. So of the 10 ways of living that God really wants us to focus on, David's broken a lot of them. And the reality is when we come to Psalm 51 and we read, oh, this is for David after he, you know, killed somebody and had an affair. Boy, that's a really important piece of poetry for David. 
It's hard to see ourselves in that. The superscription isn't there to limit it to a certain kind of sinner. The work of you and I is to do enough self-awareness like the psalmist to see ourselves in Psalm 51, even if the commandments didn't make it, even if you didn't kill anybody, even if you didn't have an affair, although some of us that's speaking to you right now. So Psalm 51 isn't for the worst of human beings in the world. Psalm 51, yes, is an individual text that I'm going to encourage you to reflect upon enough till they can become your expression to God. But it's also a communal expression because who, not just David, has rebelled, has gone wayward, has had failure because this is a communal psalm as well. This is declared by Israel and it is declared by Lake Avenue Church as well because we too, we too have Awareness, need the awareness of our rebellion, of our waywardness, of our failure. So when we have blown it, first movement of this poetry is we own it. We're self-aware enough to understand what we have done, but we don't stay there. The the poetry moves on in verses 7 to 12. Past the self-awareness of the psalmist to knowledge, what I'm calling knowledge of God and God's ways. Because when we are self-aware... We can know what's true of us, but man, we we better hold what's true of us to what's true of God and his ways. Because it's only when we can see both of these things with some level of clarity that we can move forward, that we can move towards that fresh start. Because on our own, waking up and owning our stuff doesn't bring freedom. We don't have that kind of power. I don't care what book you have read or what self-help trick you think about. You have a way to move on and trick your brain, but in an eternal sense, you and I can do nothing with the ownership of our sin. It's God and God alone who can take us in that moment, in our worst moment, and do something crazy and beautiful. And that's what the psalmist is reflecting on, his knowledge of God, what is true of God, what is true when God, what does God deal with us when we sin? In verses 7 to 9, first one, what's true of God? That God cleanses our sin. Verse 7, cleanse and wash. Verse 9, blot out. And this is one of those moments where we get this this image that, that we typically think of a landscape image when it talks about being cleansed so clean that we're white as snow. That the idea that what God does is take this kind of barren landscape and then we go to bed and we wake up and there's like the feeling when you wake up and there's snow outside that all of a sudden we're clean. This white as snow language in the Bible is not landscape language, it's laundry language. It suggests scrubbing and cleaning and rinsing and working out all of the stains within clothing so that when it's done by the person doing the scrubbing, that that garment is as new. It's not magical landscape language. It's, it's, it's difficult language of scrubbing. And so when the psalmist is saying what's true of God, he's declaring not this God who just sprinkles pixie dust over all of our sin and makes it all happy and pretty, It's a God who gets in with his people and scrubs them and washes them and works with them and helps them to move past the stains of their life. It's intimate. It's aggressive. It's certainly not distant. So what's true of God and God's ways? 
is that when we own our stuff, he is faithful to cleanse us, to make us new, to work on us, to get us clean. And who does this? We don't do this with one another. The worst mistakes we've made to one another, it is very rare for us in our human experience to treat one another with the idea of scrubbing and becoming clean and forgiving as if something has never happened. In fact, we have strategies and phrases that say we can forgive but never forget. And this image of God, what's true of God is that he takes our worst moments our worst moments of disobedience, and he scrubs us and he makes us into something as if it's never happened. That's what's true of God. The other thing that's true of God in verse eight is that God speaks forgiveness. When the psalmist expresses, let me hear, where are you, verse eight? Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. When we have broken relationships in our marriage and our friendships, We need the audible, is everything okay? And the psalmist is declaring to God, I want to hear the joy again of you in my life. I want to move past this low point of rebellion, of sin. I want to celebrate again in our home the way that works is when the boys have done something where we're parenting or disciplining. It's like when the laughter returns, I know we've moved on past that moment. When the wrestling resumes, And sometimes the boys walk around like, is he still upset? And so last night, Panzerini's, you were there. I just took my oldest son and I threw him in the pool. That was the signify, we're back. (laughs) God speaks that kind of forgiveness audibly, experientially. The psalmist is asking, God, I know what's true of you is you, you can scrub me, you can make me clean, but I can also audibly express and and, and feel and experience forgiveness because we all need to hear from the person we've wronged that everything's okay. We all need to know that everything is back. I love Micah 7 where it declares, "Who, who is a God like you? You don't stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. It's this idea that that, that there's a change a coming. Other thing that's true about God in this famous set of scriptures, verses 10 through 12, is that God creates and recreates us. So to this point, notice that what the psalmist has said what's true of God is that God can deal with the sin of this person's life. Psalm 10 to 12 starts dealing with the person. God is faithful to remove sin to blot out, to wash, to scrub clean. He is faithful to even give an audible like we're back. But he's also faithful to change us, to become something new. Create in me a clean heart. The person is being dealt with. The psalmist is expressing, make me something I have never been before. Make something new of me that has never been true. This is a song, we'll end the service with it. It's a song I sing to the boys when I put them to bed. And last night, Henry, our 11-year-old, is going to camp. Henry Matisich, write it down. Pray for him and him only this week at camp, okay? (laughs) And I said to him, buddy, I'm preaching this text tomorrow and I want you to know my prayer for you at camp. And I talked about that song I sing about creating. And I said, "What what I'm praying is that This week of camp, God would create something new in your heart and your life, something new that's not true right now of you. And by the way, Henry, that's the prayer I have for me and mom and Russell too. 
psalmist knows what's true of God is that God can do something wild with us, his people. That he can create something that has never been there before, a pure heart, a clean heart. That he can make us into something new, a commitment in verse 11 to stay with us, his creation, to sustain us in this new creation. So, psalmist, those times where we want to start new, own what we have done. And then know the truth of who God is and what God does. Make sure it's true. Know that God cleans, that God forgives, and that God can create something new. And then there's this final part of the poetry, what I'm calling these forward commitments, where the psalmist is vowing to God that his life is going to look different because of all this. I'll teach your transgressors my ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. The psalmist is declaring to God that I will live differently. It's not a juvenile or insecure reaction from the psalmist that sometimes we think about when No, this time it's going to be different. I'm not going to get in trouble again. I won't do that again. And the psalmist is is authentic in this moment to say, I will do a couple of things moving forward. First, I will have a commitment to proclaiming who you are, God. I will teach. My tongue will sing. I will declare. Audible testimony of who God is is part of your and my following Jesus. It's not just for some with some spiritual gifts. It's all of us. When we have been washed, when we have been set free from the sin of our lives, you and I need to make a forward commitment that people are going to know that story of our lives. Others will be impacted, and frankly, others will be targeted to know the story of Jesus. The psalmist makes a public a commitment to publicly share about who God is and what God has done in his life. We have a word of that for that called evangelism. So the psalmist, aware of their sin, aware of what God does with that, says, I will live differently, I will proclaim. And he also makes a commitment to devotion. If you look through 16 and 19, it's this talk about you don't delight in sacrifice, and as Matthew led so beautifully, that my new sacrifice is my heart. Essentially what the psalmist is saying, no more religiosity. My following you is not going to be out of obligation or culture or obligation. I'm not just going to show up to church, do the things I'm supposed to do, and that's my relationship with you, God. I'm giving you me. I'm giving you all of me, and my broken heart, my contrite spirit is what I'm offering you. I'm not offering you my Sunday morning for a couple of hours. I'm offering you my life. The response to God from the psalmist, the response of their sin, of God and who God is, is one of proclaiming who God is and true and honest devotion to God. So, so the poetry's loaded, and I've been thinking, and we're, we're running short on time. I have a couple of questions for application in light of this, because I'm just assuming that some of us here this morning, that there's somewhere in our lives, in the past, in the present, and it will be in the future where we want that fresh start. We want that new start with God. And if we allow Psalm 51 to give us a context of how we live in that moment, a couple of questions. One, do you have regular space in your life for self-reflection? 
We live in a full and fast world and culture that is noisy. I, I guess I learned that these last couple of weeks, being on an island in a place where you had no cell phone range, that I, I, how often I would grab for my phone just to do what? So when I got my report from Apple that my time was down significantly each week, I went, wow, what if I just took 20% of that time where I'm filling it with that, just spent some time reflecting a little bit more. The fact is you and I don't, in this world, reflect enough on what we've done in a day, the conversations we've had, the things we have done, the words we have said about other people. Do you have space in your life for self-reflection? Or is your life too full? And do you have any voices in your life to help you with that? Do you have a Nathan or a few of them that can say hard things to you to wake you up to the reality of who we really are as human beings? So one, do you have space? If you don't, I encourage you to start carving some space. Number two, are you growing in your love for God and God's ways? Greg talked about this last week. It's important to note that you can know something true of God and live a life that is totally opposite of that. It's not enough to know true things about God. It requires us to know true things about the way of living God wants us to live. This is an easy one, but in the news this week, and I don't watch the show, I promise, but in The Bachelor, if you're aware, there was this headline because apparently one of the contestants was let go because of their, they didn't want to have sex and they were follower of Jesus and we saved that for marriage and the, the contestant on the show looked at it and said, um, I've had sex and Jesus loves me. Super true statement. Jesus does love that person. There's an acknowledgement of something true about God. Our culture declares all kinds of true things about God all the time. He is loving. He is forgiving. He's incredible. But what's paired next to that statement is a, a, a disacknowledgement of God's ways. So I even know something true about God and fully say this way of living isn't of God. That's why I found so ironic about the statement. It's so true, yes, our worst mistake, God still loves us, but there's an acknowledgement of a way of living. And for many of us in church, we know so many true things about God, but we haven't thought and learned enough about God's ways because our natural ways or the philosophy or the ideology that drives us, we have to really bring that under the ways of Jesus and the ways of the scripture to make sure that the way we live is consistent with the way of living God calls us to. So it's not just enough to know true things about God because God also has a way of living and are you growing? What have you learned lately about God? What have you unlearned lately about God? That, that wasn't fully true. How is God growing you and challenging you? I had a conversation at our week of Campus by the Sea where somebody asked me the difference between a youth pastor and doing what I do now, and I said, I'll tell you the truth. Teenagers love to be challenged. Teenagers, you could be blunt and say, stop doing this and start living this way, and they are high challenge, high risk. If this thing is true, give it to me. Tell me, tell me something. But I think in adults, we struggle with high challenge, that at some point we walk with Jesus enough where we don't want to be challenged anymore in the same way we used to. We've got it figured out who God is and his ways. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, the world you and I live in, man, it's a challenge. 
And we better allow God to challenge our assumptions and our ways so that we can be consistent with his way of living. So are you growing? I'd love for us to continue to grow as a church. Third, what are your commitments moving forward? It's not juvenile to tell God, hey, this week I'm, I'm gonna try better. That's not insincere. It's true. And don't let the shame message of your life discredit you from making forward-looking commitments to Jesus about how it's gonna be different. Don't ever settle for that you are your worst mistake. Don't ever settle for that you really aren't capable of change or that you've tried it and I prayed this prayer for 30 years. No, 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 you keep looking forward with Jesus and you say, create in me a clean heart, O God. Make me into something I've never been before. Move forward. Shame can prevent us from moving forward when we believe that who we are is our worst mistake or that we will never be different or that is not the point. Forward commitments are declarations of what life should be about. Psalm 51, we see that life is about proclamation and devotion to God. When have you proclaimed to God how you're gonna share his story? When have you proclaimed to God that you're really gonna devote to him in a different way? Those aren't flippant, small asterisks on your prayer life. They're real and they're meaningful. The psalmist has them there so we can have them. And finally, do you hear Psalm 51 for yourself or for someone else in your life? I think this is a biggie. Many of us read a psalm like 51 and we think about how somebody else really needs that in their life. Because we know what they've done. Or we think we know what kind of person they are or we've labeled them or judged them. And so when it comes to Psalm 51, we love reading Psalm 51 for somebody else. And my question is, can this be your expression? Even if you haven't broken four commandments to get to it? Can this be your true expression to God to own, to be self-aware of the way you live and how opposite it is from God's ways? Can you declare in Psalm 51 what's true of God, that he can cleanse you, he forgives you, and he can create something new in you? And can you declare, like the psalmist in Psalm 51, that from this point forward, I'm gonna live differently? Because until Psalm 51 becomes our personal and corporate prayer, man, we just just will be stunted, I believe. I think our ability to pray Psalm 51 might be one of the greatest tools in the world we live in to be the best evangelists in this world because we won't stand out and go, look at the way you're living and it's so, so bad. And boy, if you could just be like us, but what we'd be able to declare is, wow, I'm right there with you and let me tell you about a God who changed my life. May that be true of our church. May that be true of your heart. Oh, and I pray it be true of me. Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to be together, to open up your word, to be this body of Christ that you're not done with, that you're still moving and working on. And God, I would pray that Psalm 51 wouldn't just be this ancient expression from David's worst moment, but that you would allow it to be our expression in today's moment. Amen.